Before we start today's episode, I wish to acknowledge that this podcast has been recorded on the traditional lands of the Ghana people. I pay my deepest respect to Elders past and present, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures. I acknowledge the Ghana people as the custodians of the Adelaide region, and consider myself incredibly lucky to live, work, and raise a family on Ghana land. everyone and welcome to the Truth About Aging podcast. I'm your host, Kate Helmore. Each week we'll be unpacking your questions about the aged care sector, discussing how to age well, grow old and make informed decisions. Let's get started. Hello and welcome to episode 65 of the Truth About Aging podcast. My name is Kate. I am the host of the show And today we're going to be talking all about hard conversations with helping loved ones that live with dementia. So if you tuned into last fortnight's episode, that was more broadly around how to help someone access services. And we talked about curiosity, empathy, goal-focused discussions. Today, we're really going to be focused more so on helping loved ones living with dementia, both in terms of encouraging them to say yes to help and also in terms of getting cognitive assessments, which can be a really tricky barrier to overcome sometimes. So to start off with, I just want to put at the very top of this, the most wonderful resource going around for all things dementia, Dementia Australia. So you can find them at dementia.org.au or via the National Dementia Hotline on 1800 100 500. They are 12 out of 10. Their resources are there for people living with dementia, for carers or loved ones that need help. They cover so many different facets of dementia, memory loss, getting care, getting assessments, how to work through finances, wills, advanced care directives. They cover it all on their website. It is fantastic. If you're not someone who's very tech savvy, I highly also recommend giving them a call. They have a service they offer both online and over the phone called a service inquiry request where you can put in your details, your situation, again, whether you're the person living with dementia or somebody that is caring for someone living with dementia, and they'll let you know about the services that are available to you. And that could be anything from services within your home through something like a home care package. It could be dementia support groups for carers. It could be uh, access to aids and equipment that specialize in dementia equipment that can be helpful as you're aging. There are a myriad of different services that they offer, and I highly recommend their website for additional information if you're wanting some of that. I also wanted to mention at the top, I will be kind of just diving into the topics today, but if you wanted a bit more backstory, backstory? If you wanted a bit more information about all things dementia, I have done four podcast episodes previously, episodes 13, 14, 15, and 16. In those, I cover what dementia is, what to do if you suspect someone might be living with dementia, what some of those warning signs are, the common behaviors, how you might respond to those behaviors. There's quite a bit of information back in episodes 13 to 16. So that could be a good starting point if you are really just wanting to understand a little bit more about the basics first. 
Now, I did touch on in the last episode, but it is estimated that in 2023, there's 400,000 Australians living with dementia, and that's expected to increase to 800,000 by 2058. Now, for those 400,000 people living with dementia, it's estimated there's more than 1.5 million people in Australia involved in the care of someone living with dementia. Now, that can be family members, it can be friends, it can be neighbours. There are a whole lot of people that take on the role of caring for someone with dementia, but I guess that's just to say it impacts a lot of us and will impact a lot of us, even if you're not already impacted. The other interesting part is that two in three people living with dementia are living in the community. I think often we think about it that you're diagnosed with dementia and then you are placed in a residential care facility and that's where you're looked after. But two in three people are living in the community and I think that's why it's so important that we have discussions around how to support them because that's where most people are choosing to live. Now, I'm going to break this episode down into two parts, partly on how to get a cognitive assessment, and I'll explain what I mean by that in a second. And secondly, how to encourage people to say yes to services or yes to help. Often people living with dementia aren't aware of their cognitive state, so they might believe they're coping sufficiently. They might think that they're doing really well, but you might start to notice some signs of decline and start to be a little concerned about how they're actually going. That often makes conversations about dementia quite challenging because you might be having it with someone that feels that they're okay. And it's important to note from the top too that this is their reality. Sometimes the things people living with dementia say to us can seem really outrageous or just so obviously false. And it's really important that when we're having these discussions, we do it through a lens of understanding that is their reality. And whilst we're not always going to encourage that and continue those narratives, We need to be really gentle in how we deliver things and always put ourselves in their shoes of what does their reality look like? If I thought, well, I do, I think I'm living quite fine at home. I think I'm pretty competent. I think I keep on top of things. If someone were then to come to me and say, you know what, you actually, I think you're losing it. I would be absolutely blown away. And so whilst there's obviously a bit of a difference between me and someone living with dementia, that is still the impact that that has for somebody is that you are questioning their reality. So I just want to make that really clear from the start. These are very delicate conversations to have. So part one is cognitive assessment. Now, what do I mean by cognitive assessment? Basically, a cognitive test or assessment is checking for problems with your mental function. So how your brain processes things. Now, this can be important for someone living with a cognitive impairment or dementia Because early diagnosis means access to supports, access to information, and often access to medications. When we don't know what exactly is at play, it can be really hard to plan for the future. The way that Alzheimer's progresses might be very different to how vascular dementia does or Lewy bodies. They'll all have slightly different ways that they present, different signs, different behaviors, and it allows you to be much more clear in what that might look like, in being prepared, and in feeling confident in how you manage that. So whilst there's no single definitive test for dementia, there are a number of different assessments that can happen along with different scans and tests that can diagnose what kind of memory loss or potential dementia you might be living with. So typically this would look like, first of all, a cognitive screening from a GP 
And this is a fairly straightforward, almost four minute kind of mini test uh, where they ask a series of questions to someone to determine whether there is any kind of deficit there. So typically that's initially conducted by your GP. From there, there can be a referral to a geriatrician. Now, a geriatrician is a, a specialist doctor in the aging. They look at your the medications. They look at full assessments in terms of what the actual diagnosis might be. Is it Lewy bodies? Is it vascular? What might that present as? And they can also then prescribe different medications that might be helpful for that too. So all up, the whole process might take three to six months to actually get to a definitive path of this is what it is but it does help give you a plan for the future. It helps you know how to best support them. And it also, if they're at a state where they can process that information too, it can help give them an idea of what that might look like and how people are supporting them along that journey. Now, there's no clear, this is the way to go to get it right every single time. These examples that I'm going to use are very situational and you know your loved one best. These are just some prompts or pointers that I've used over time that I find achieve a more positive outcome. And they are often things that are delivered over time. We're not sitting down and drilling them on a series of questions. We're looking at these things gradually and starting to open up conversations about confusion, about overwhelm, about things that you might have noticed in a way that's non-threatening, that you're really trying to get alongside them. So the first thing is the idea of gently introducing confusion in a non-threatening way. So I'll give you some examples of that. It might look like, I know when I have a lot on my plate, I can start to feel pretty overwhelmed and confused. Does that ever happen to you? Or do you ever feel like it's hard to keep on top of things? I've been drowning these last couple of months. So you're just starting to share and you obviously don't make these things up if you are just 100% fine and there's nothing wrong with you and they know that and then out of nowhere you say, oh, I'm really stressed and overwhelmed, are you? Or I've been really confused, how are you? (laughs) Probably not going to land so well. But if there's ways that you can make it relatable by sharing your own experiences and starting to open up that dialogue about how they're feeling, that can be really positive. The other one that can be helpful, and unfortunately, this only works in the context of when there's a couple living together. I say a couple living together. When they care for someone else as well, I guess they could also look after their sister or they help out their neighbor or whatever it is, something else that they are, someone else they are caring for, giving time to. You frame the conversation in the context of caring for the other person. This might look like, I noticed dad is needing a bit more help these days. That must be really hard on you. Or how are you finding it caring for Auntie Pat? I can only imagine that must be pretty exhausting some days. So again, we're just using some other ways to start to discuss how they're going. If you've received a positive response, and I'll explain the negative responses in a minute, but if you've received a positive response to some of those prompts, you know, they've started to share some stories, they've started to explain, actually, I am starting to feel a little bit overwhelmed when it comes to grocery shopping, or I noticed the other day I couldn't find my keys anywhere, and then I realized I'd left them in the fridge. If they're starting to have these conversations, then you might be in a position where you can share your experience of their confusion and try to reach an outcome. So I'll give you some examples and then I'll break them down. So it might look like, I've noticed a few times that you missed your medications. 
is this something you meant to do? Or if you forgot, do you think maybe it could be worth talking to the doctor about it just so we can make sure that there's nothing wrong? Or the other day I noticed when I asked you about John's birthday, it seemed like for a moment you didn't remember who John was. I've seen that happen a couple of times in the last few months. Do you think maybe we could make an appointment with your doctor just to make sure that this is all okay? So there's a few things we're doing within this. One, we're keeping it framed in terms of ruling anything out. So we really, we're not saying we want to find out what's wrong with you or we're not implying there is something wrong. We're doing it in terms of we just want to make sure everything's okay. Let's just rule it out. Let's make sure that things are going along as they should be. We also want to avoid, and I just said it then, you want to avoid saying we've noticed or we've seen. It can feel like even if, you know, yourself, your sister and your partner and your son have all been keeping a bit of an eye on grandpa and you've all noticed a similar thing, you don't ever want to make it feel to them that you're all watching them and that you've all noticed it and now you're kind of ganging up on them and we've noticed that you've done this and we think that you should do that. As much as it can sometimes feel less comfortable saying, I have noticed because you're taking responsibility for it, I think it also can make it a bit more palatable to them that it's just you two having that conversation and it's not a broader everyone's watching you. Even if you have set up some things where people are keeping a bit more of an eye out, we're really trying to deliver this in a way that feels non-threatening and that it's just the two of you working out a solution together. So what do you do if they still say no? If after all this they go, no, I'm fine. I don't need any of this. I don't know what you're on about. I don't have any problems and I'm fine. Could go a few different ways. You could choose to revisit it at a later date. You might go, we were kind of getting there, but it didn't seem to land. Sometimes these things take time. Sometimes it is gradually coming back to again and again until you get the outcome that you need. So it might be worth revisiting or trying a slightly different approach. Another option that can be helpful, and particularly maybe this is helpful when people might be a bit more advanced, is the option to speak directly to their GP. So this might look like just giving the practice a call and seeing if they would like you to either book an appointment with the doctor or if the doctor's happy to give you a call. And really all you're doing is using that opportunity just to summarize the concerns that you've had and also request a cognitive screening. And generally, the doctor can do it without disclosing that you contacted them. They can just work that into what they would regularly do for their patients and what I would argue they should be doing for all of their patients. And I should say too, sometimes doctors obviously only see a small piece of these people. They might have them for 10, 15 minutes at a time. They just hear what's happening from their perspective. And sometimes these extra pieces of the puzzle can be really helpful to give them a greater idea about what might be going on. So often, in my experience, they're quite grateful for that extra information and it allows them to look at some other things that they might be able to look into further as well. Now, if none of these things work, I think sometimes the frustrating thing is that ultimately it is their own decision. These are full-grown adults that are dealing with their own lives that are capable of making decisions. A term that's often used in aged care is what they call dignity of risk. And that is that they are given the opportunity to fail sometimes. So ultimately, unless they are putting themselves at significant risk or others at significant risk, it is their decision. And as per usual, I do find these things are better to look at sooner rather than later. If you can get screenings earlier, you can get that assessment, that access to supports, access to medications, to services. 
it can be a really helpful way of slowly getting supports in for that person living with dementia rather than waiting for when it's really far advanced and it can be a lot more difficult to access those services or to work alongside them to get access to those services. Okay, so that's part one around getting a cognitive assessment or supporting someone to get a cognitive assessment. Part two is around encouraging people to say yes to help. Now, I should say at the start, help I'm defining as both formal and informal supports. So this might look like services delivered from a home care package, but equally it could be the neighbor that checks in on them or the daughter that comes around to help deliver the mail or the son that goes to cook dinner on a Sunday night, whatever that might look like. It's all the different help. And I think particularly in the context of dementia, It can be really helpful to look at that holistically. It doesn't just have to come from one place. We're looking at the whole community and how we can all be supporting that individual to remain living at home. Now, these are very similar principles that apply to what I talked about in the first episode of the Hard Conversation series. So again, we're looking at this through curiosity, with empathy, and with goal-focused discussions. And again, keeping in mind you're speaking to their reality. Even if you feel that you know something different or that you might know better than them, they're speaking their truth and you can't argue with that. We need to keep this in the context of their reality and how they're going and working alongside them with that. So we're going to use curiosity. So we're trying to establish what they might need assistance with. We're going to use empathy to validate their experience and maybe even share some of your own struggles. And we're going to use goal-focused discussion to help try get to some of those outcomes. So some examples of that. How are you finding it keeping up with the household chores? I know I've been really struggling to keep on top of my washing lately. Maybe we could look at getting someone in to help with the cleaning. Or what happened to that wonderful orange coat that you used to wear? I seem to see you in the same jeans every time I visit now. Maybe we could clean up your wardrobe together and pop on a few loads of washing at the same time. Or, gosh, I'm finding it hard to keep up with my garden with all this rain lately. How do you feel you've been going with yours? Do you think maybe we could get someone in to help or I could get Uncle Joe to come over with the mower next weekend and we could fix it up together? So what we're doing within that is helping maybe acknowledge some of the things that might be getting a little bit harder and getting alongside them to come up with creative solutions about ways that you can keep their independence, but with a little bit of help around that. So again, what do we do if you try these things and they say, no, I'm fine. I don't need any help. There's nothing. I don't need anything. I'm coping quite well on my own. Again, We need to accept that there's a degree of risk. So this is something that might need to be reviewed quite regularly by family, by carers, by professionals, where that acceptable risk is. But ultimately, if they're not doing any harm to themselves or harm to anyone else, it is really important that their wishes and concerns are also considered in that. Now, again, if it gets to a point that it is not safe for them or that it's not safe for somebody else, that's a very different situation. Another thing you can do, particularly in the context if they're not accepting formal support, so they say, I'm not having an age care assessment, I'm not having people come into my home, it might be around, again, looking more broadly at what does the rest of that community look like? How could we maybe get the family more involved? Is it that between the 
grandchildren, your siblings, the neighbour down the road, neighbour down the road, I guess your neighbour's next door, the neighbour next door, (laughs) that between you, you can work out a little bit of a roster. You might have a family meeting early on to work out how can we attack this together and what might this look like? It might be that their son goes in to cook a roast on a Sunday night. It might be that their grandchild comes to mow the lawn on a Wednesday. It could be that weekly you do a shopping order online together and get it delivered to their house. There's a number of different things that people can play into with that, but creating a bit of a support within the family and looking more broadly than that too. I think it's important to look at and what I've seen work incredibly well for some people living in the community is where you get the broader community involved in that too and speak to other people about this. So this can look like friends, neighbors, local shopkeepers, local police. It can be people, anyone that's within that community that has contact with them regularly, having conversations with them about that. I know I had a client that would often wander down the street and head up past a particular petrol station. And the petrol station knew that if they saw them go a bit too far, it probably meant that they were lost. So then they would contact the retirement village that they lived in and say, hey, just letting you know, so-and-so's up the road, thought you just might want to check. There's also, I had a client who loved to get a burger from a particular shop and they'd go there pretty much every night. But so the family set up an arrangement with the burger shop that they would just prepay the burgers. They would pay them a hundred bucks at a time. And then when that person that was living with quite advanced dementia in the community would go there without any money or without anything else, he could just walk in, order his burger and walk home again. And that shop knew that they were not only providing meal for him. They were providing social interaction, but they were also that bit of a check-in that if one day maybe he didn't come and then he didn't come again the next day, they get in touch with the family and say, hey, just letting you know, we haven't seen Joe all week and we're just wondering if he's okay. There's so many different supports. I think thinking creatively about that network of support is a really important thing to do and it can help you keep a really tactful eye on that person so they don't feel like they're being watched or monitored all the time but it just means that there's people keeping an eye out for them so they are still free to move about the community but they have people within that who know who they are who know that they live with dementia and know who to contact if there is something wrong. Now on top of that There's a couple of things that you can do, again, without formal supports, but if they have said yes, even better, but making the house safe. So making sure that let's say they actually don't cook anymore and they could potentially be quite a hazard with a stove, that you have the gas disconnected or that they have a bar heater that they leave on too often and it's been a few times overnight, it's been left on and it's a bit too close to the curtain, that that's removed for something else that's set up on a timer that's not as much as a fire hazard. It could also be looking at independence aids. So things like easy to read clocks with big, bold numbers. They can be personal alarms that can even track those GPS trackers in personal alarms that can then let you know where they are if they do go off wandering. Reminder timers, which are fantastic for things like medications. There are so many different independence aids that can work really effectively for people living with dementia in the community. And I would say probably the main place to look at that, each state and territory have an independent living centre. If you just Google independent living centre, New South Wales, it should show you where the ones are local to you. 
and the staff that work within those businesses are fantastic at working with you and what might be helpful too. So they can not only provide advice about home modifications, it can also be things like home design, different products like smoke detectors, hot water service temperature regulators, monitoring services. There's a number of different things that they do. So the independent living centers can be really helpful as well. The other one that's really important, and again, this can be a tricky one to navigate sometimes, but helping someone manage their financial and legal decisions as their capacity decreases. So ideally, if they still have capacity when they're diagnosed, you want to get these documents set up as soon as possible. In fact, it's essential to get some advice while the person can still participate in that decision making. All of your legal documents, your power of attorneys, advanced care directives, wills, they can't be completed or updated if you no longer have capacity. When I say no longer have capacity, there are particular points at which someone might be so advanced that they are no longer deemed to have capacity to make those decisions. Now, if they can't make those decisions themselves, that's where things like the public trustee, office of the public advocate, civil and administrative tribunals come in. They can, there are state-based services that will make those decisions for people that do not have capacity to do so. However, obviously where possible, we want them to be able to document their wishes so that that can be enacted for them, even at a point where they might not be able to communicate that. I should say specifically on that, I did an episode back, episode 52, about what to do when you don't have future planning documents with a beautiful social worker called Tamara. If you have more interest in that area, that can be a great episode to link back into. So that is more or less the things that we're looking at for trying to get someone to access help and what to do, particularly when someone living with dementia says no to accessing help. I feel like we've covered a lot this episode. (laughs) This was initially in my head going to be quite a short one. So I think it's really important to keep in mind the importance of cognitive assessments and getting those early of working alongside someone to really try to get that across the line. And if not, speaking with their GP directly and sharing your concerns and also looking at how we can encourage someone to say yes to help, both informal and formal supports. And particularly in the situations where they say no, what are some of the more creative ways that we can still get some support around them to make sure that they're as safe as possible to keep living independently at home? So that is today's episode, Hard Conversations Part 2. I hope you have enjoyed today's episode and that there's some bits and pieces that have come out of this or that have really landed for you. As always, if you have any questions or want any more information, you can reach me at www.navigateagecare.com.au. I'm also on Instagram at The Truth About Aging and also on Facebook at navigate aged care au so you can find me on each of those platforms if you have any questions if you just want to have a bit of a chat about your loved one and where you think they might be at and what might be helpful you can book a free 15 minute consultation via my website i think that's all i think i'm waffling now so i'm going to wrap that one up there will be a new episode coming out in a fortnight if you would like to subscribe to the navigate newsletter which will be coming out on the first sunday of september you can do so via my website navigateagecare.com.au forward slash newsletter 
I will leave it there. I hope you have a beautiful day wherever you are and I will talk to you again soon. Bye.